This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. Now, this is a great segment. If you've heard of consumer proposals before but don't quite know what it is, or maybe personal bankruptcy and what it looks like today. So there's a big difference between the two and how making a consumer proposal is different to filing for bankruptcy. And there's some key differences. Uh, so, Blair, since some people might not be familiar with the consumer proposal or bankruptcy, can we just start with definitions uh, and a bit of a summary on both of the processes? Yeah, definitely, Elaine. I'm really excited for today's segment because we're going to try in our, in our 13 minutes to give a really good grounding of both of these options, compare and contrast, where they're similar and they're different. And, you know, jumping right into it, uh, the idea of the ins and outs of each of these of these debt remedies, you know, most people don't research these until they're confronted with a debt problem. So having this knowledge in the back of your mind, hopefully it's going to help you if you're facing it, but also can help you help somebody in your life that you care about who might also be facing a financial difficulty. Personal bankruptcy, in a nutshell, it's a federally legislated legal process, and that's a, a mouthful, but essentially it means it's sanctioned by the law, and it allows you to eliminate your debts in the event that you're no longer able to meet your financial obligations. So in Canada, personal bankruptcy legislation can result in full forgiveness for virtually all of your debts and allows you to get a financial fresh start. So the wording in the law is it's a fresh, a fresh start for the honest but unfortunate debtor. If you've done your best, but you've had some unfortunate things happen to you, bankruptcy is the remedy that allows you to get back to zero, start fresh, and begin to rebuild your finances. Uh, a consumer proposal uh, is still available through a licensed insolvency trustee. So the same person that would assist you with the bankruptcy can assist you with a consumer proposal. And it's a hugely popular alternative. In fact, two-thirds of people that come to see trustees in the province of BC typically opt to file a consumer proposal instead of a personal bankruptcy. And the way a consumer proposal works is it's similar to a debt consolidation where you make a single monthly payment um, over a set period of time. But the big difference with a debt consolidation is instead of having to pay back all the money plus some interest on top of that, a consumer proposal can drastically reduce the amount of debt you have to repay. It still considers your debts paid in full, but you can often reduce up to 50, even up to 80% of the debt that you're charged. And there's never another dollar of interest charged um, as well as there's no additional fees for service on top of that. So if you owed someone $20,000, for example, you offered a proposal for 30% of that at $6,000, that's all you'd be required to pay all the costs of administration would be born out of, say, a regular monthly payment of $100 a month over 60 months. And those are reasonable numbers that we see quite often at Sands & Associates. Uh, what's nice is that with a consumer proposal is it's flexible. So you could decide you want to do monthly payments. It could be a single lump sum payment. The payments could scale up and down. Uh, but it's a very powerful means of avoiding bankruptcy um, if, if, if you have the ability to make some repayments. And, and what about your eligibility? How does that work for each of them? 
Yeah, eligibility is the same. Um, so you have to owe at least $1,000. And generally, nobody's filing bankruptcy or doing a proposal for $1,000. But people do it for, you know, five to $10,000. The average is probably in the range of thirty dollars to $50,000 or so these days. Uh, and for a consumer proposal, it's up to $250,000 at the debt level. And you can even do a proposal if you have higher debts than that. It's just a bit of a different legal, legal remedy. Um, but with a bankruptcy, there's no constraints. You could do a bankruptcy for, you know, essentially an unlimited amount of debt. I've seen people... You know, in the millions of debt, if perhaps they had an ICBC accident where they weren't covered, or perhaps a corporate guarantee of some debts if a business failed and they were on the hook. But a bankruptcy, there's no constraint on the amount of the debt. A proposal, essentially, you're going to try to repay some portion of it. So if it's a huge amount of debt, trying to pay back, you know, 10% of a million dollar debt, that's very difficult to do compared to 10% of, you know, a $40,000 debt. Well, that's a whole lot easier to do. So you've just got to be, be clear. It's a, an affordable amount is essentially your constraint with a consumer proposal. And, and both ways uh, include pretty much all types of debt, right? Yeah, and that's a real surprise to a lot of folks because a lot of people I sit down with, they say, okay, I know you guys can help me with the credit cards, uh, but I know the government, my gosh, they're going to get their pound of flesh no matter what, you can't assist with that, and that's just completely incorrect. A trustee is the only person that can assist with government debt, like taxes, student loans, ICBC debt, so on and so forth. Uh, in general, a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal can include virtually all kinds of debt. Um, your general consumer and business debts, you know, I mentioned your credit cards, lines of credit, overdrafts payday loans, even personal debts owing to an individual. Uh, we've talked about government debts, student loans. Um, so it really is just about all inclusive. There's a small number of debts that no matter the remedy, they can't be reduced. And these are the more common sense debts that you would think you probably shouldn't be able to reduce. So something like a child support obligation, um, something like an alimony amount that's awarded by court, um, or if you've been taken to court uh, for an assault charge and there's been a monetary award against you, and it's very specific things, um, that can't be discharged if you go in through bankruptcy or do a consumer proposal, but essentially any debt that was honestly incurred, aside from, again, those support type of obligations, um, you can help, you can restructure and then discharge either in a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy proceeding. Such good information, Blair, and there's a lot of it. So I just want to mention to folks who are listening going, oh my gosh, I feel a bit overwhelmed by all of this. It's so easy to go to the website sans-trustee.com and it's filled with great questions and answers. Pretty much every question you may come up with, uh, there's going to be a good answer for you. Or if you want to go ahead and make that appointment and, and sit down and talk with someone like Blair or Blair himself, 1-800-661-3030. And I just want to throw in, they have offices all over British Columbia. So, Blair, let's get back to it. What are some of the other ways options differ when it comes to negotiation and overall repayment? Yeah, there's a very key difference between a bankruptcy and a proposal because in a bankruptcy, essentially, it's your decision, your decision alone. No creditors can reject your decision to file a bankruptcy. You don't need permission from anybody. You sit down with a trustee, you file the bankruptcy documents, and you're generally going to be entitled to 100% forgiveness uh, of all of your debts. Uh, now, where a consumer proposal works is a consumer proposal, there is an option for your creditors. Any proposal could be accepted or rejected, so your creditors do have a say on whether your proposal is going to succeed. And the way a proposal is, you know, essentially the, the idea behind it is it's meant to be a win-win. 
So the win to you is you avoid a bankruptcy filing altogether, because if anybody could avoid a bankruptcy, typically they're interested in at least investigating that. The win to your creditors is they receive more money back than if you had filed for bankruptcy. So when we file a consumer proposal, we show the creditors a page that has two columns on it. One is here's a hypothetical bankruptcy proceeding. This is the individual's option. They could file this tomorrow with no notice to you creditors until it's done. um, And you'll have to be forced to accept, you know, sometimes it's zero recovery, sometimes it's five or 10 cents on the dollar. Uh, We contrast that with a consumer proposal where we say the person doesn't want to go into bankruptcy and you creditor, I'm sure, would like to get back as much of the debt as possible. So how about we work together with the client and you receive, say, a 30% repayment of the debt over time? 95 out of 100 of our proposals are accepted right off the bat. Creditors agree with our first offer. The other 5%, sometimes there's some negotiations back and forth, but it's about 99% of the time proposals get accepted by creditors. And that sounds pretty high, I understand, but it's also the case not all of your creditors even have to agree to get a proposal accepted. So if you owe, say, five people money all of the same amount, um, all we need is a majority in dollar value say yes to the proposal. So if three of those individuals said yes, uh, the other two, even if they said there's no way on God's green earth will we accept, you know, writing off 80% of our debt, accepting 20% back, well, the other creditors holding a majority of the debt have said yes to that proposal. It's legally binding. It's enforceable against everybody. Nobody can opt out, even if it's the government that says they don't want this proposal. If your other debts outweigh the government and your other debts say yes, it's all acceptable, legally binding, and you've got the protection of doing that proposal. I know you've got some other examples on some of the differences in flexibility between bankruptcy and making a proposal. Do you want to talk briefly about those? Yeah, yeah. Thank you, Elaine. There's just so many things that we could go uh, go down on. I, I think we definitely want to, want to focus on things that are most important. So, you know, a stay of proceedings, um, that's a legal term, and that's applicable to both a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And what that means is you get protection. So a lot of people understand, you know, instinctively, if you file for bankruptcy, it means people have to leave you the heck alone. They have to stop calling you. They have to stop harassing you. There can be no court proceedings taken against you. That's the same protection you receive in a consumer proposal as in a personal bankruptcy. So it's not the case you need to go bankrupt to get protection. You can get the same protection when you file a consumer proposal. Uh, I think it's important for us to talk about monthly payments as well, uh, because there is quite a difference between how a personal bankruptcy and a consumer proposal are structured in terms of monthly payments. Uh, And the way a bankruptcy works is a bankruptcy is based on your household income. So most bankruptcies require you to just pay the cost of administrations about 80% of the time. If someone files for bankruptcy, they're usually considered low income. And in that situation, they pay a minimum fee of $200 a month for nine months. And that's all they have to pay in total is $1,800. That's regardless of the amount of the debt. It could be $10,000, $100,000, or a million. The payments don't scale at all based on the amount of the debt. They just scale based on your monthly income. And that contrasts with the consumer proposal, where the payment is just what percentage can you afford to repay on the debt, and you can divide those payments over a maximum term of 60 months. So an example that that we had reviewed before, Elaine, uh, is if you had a consumer proposal of debts of $40,000, a typical offer might be to give your creditors a 30% repayment, which is $12,600, and you could pay that at $350 a month over 36 months. Or if you extended it out to 60 months, you could pay it for $210 a month, but your total amount is just the 30% of that total of $40,000. So your debts go from $40,000 to $12,600, and you get the time you need to make those reduced payments to pay off that reduced balance. 
How big a difference is it between the consumer proposal and bankruptcy for your time to complete each one? Well, a bankruptcy is typically going to be over a little bit more quickly. So, you know, a nine-month bankruptcy is about as quick as you could ever deal with a problem debt situation in Canada. Now, some proposals are over relatively quickly. If it's a lump sum proposal, let's say, you know, a third party, perhaps a family member or a friend wants to give you some money to pay off a reduced balance of your debt, well, a proposal might be over and done within the space of two or three months. But that's not the regular, uh, that's not the everyday, typically a consumer proposal. It's going to be payments over a period of usually two to four years, a maximum of five years, and it can be done as soon as you're able to pay it off. So a proposal is definitely more flexible in terms of the timing. Uh, A bankruptcy can be as short as nine months, but if you're not low income, a bankruptcy will run for a year longer than that, uh, which is 21 months in total. And if you filed a bankruptcy before, which sometimes about 15% of people that file one bankruptcy sometimes need to get that help again in the future, the bankruptcy term can last longer, can be a couple of years uh, as a base there as well. So the timing can differ quite a bit on each situation. Now, I was going to spend the last couple of seconds, Blair, giving you an opportunity to talk about why it's such a good idea to talk to a licensed insolvency trustee, but I'm you just really just gave us the best example ever by explaining all of the all of the differences and the and the pieces of of filing for bankruptcy or fi- or filing a consumer proposal. So well done. And I want to also mention to to go to the website sands-trustee.com if you've got more questions. Uh, it's just filled with such good, clear, easy to understand uh, answers for all of your questions. As well as I want to encourage you to give them a call at one eight hundred. 661-3030. Sands and Associates has offices all over British Columbia. You're listening to Dollars and Cents. We're going to talk about risky debt cycles. And this is going to be an interesting uh, segment because we're specifically talking about payday loans and the amount of risk that's out there uh, around payday loans. Uh, it's so interesting because it, when, when it comes to alternative borrowing, lots of debt experts caution payday loans are among the riskiest types of debts to have. And and yet they seem, Blair, that they're so much more available than they ever were before. Uh, the, the offices and the places that you can go to to uh, do payday loans um, are considerable, right? I mean, it seems like it's a growing industry to me. Oh, yes, Elaine. There's, there's just tons, whether it's brick and mortar, um, places popping up all the time, you know, some very you know, large national banners, some, you know, very small regional, maybe just a single location or two. Uh, even online, you can find, you know, payday lenders these days. So it's, it's very easy to get into the into this type of debt. Um, and payday loans are typically, they're a special type of debt. It's usually your last resort. So it's, it's what you go to yeah. when, you know, typically you've been turned down for a bunch of other types of debt that, you know, might have better terms. Uh, and the big challenge with payday loans um, is that they're very addictive. So I've, I've said before, there's a crack cocaine of borrowing. Um, you, you get one, you need a second, you need a third. I see people with 10 to 15 different payday loans moving money around crazily each month, just trying to keep all the balls in the air. Um, so the challenges are the interest rate is so high, all the costs and the fees, that often when you have one you need to take out a second or a third to actually pay off the cost of just that first loan, and it creates a vicious cycle. So it's very, as you said, risky financing. And I'm really happy today we're going to delve into a bunch, um, you know, the numbers, the structure, how these work, um, and hopefully give people some good insights that help them try to avoid using this type of financing. Okay, well, let's let's start with the actual payday loan, how it's set up uh, and, how, and how it works. Why is it, you know, how it becomes so risky for the borrower? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, so payday loans, so it's offered, you know, usually physically in store, but now online, and it's by privately owned companies. So this isn't, um, you know, your large banks, typically, it's not a government organization, it's a private organization just starts off to offer payday loans. And they are subject to provincial regulations. So it's a short term loan, and the regulations state you can borrow up to $1,500. Um, the objective is a payday loan, it's meant to cover a cash shortfall for a short period. So the idea is, like the name, it's in between your paydays, you're going to pay it off of your next paycheck. Uh, And in BC, that's up to $1,500. You've got up to 62 days to pay your payday loan back. So it's not supposed to be long-term financing. Uh, And if you don't repay your payday loan, plus the interest and the fees, you face even more interest and fees. So what about an installment loan? Is that the next piece that we want to talk about in relation to this? Because how is that different? Well, that's important for people to know. The payday lenders started off a number of years ago, and they were just payday loans. They were just the $1,500, pay it back in up to 60 days, and that was their their bread and butter. Now, what I've seen in the last couple of years especially is just an explosion in what's called installment loans with all the big payday lenders doing this, uh, and it's typically for an amount larger than that of a payday loan. It can be much larger. I've seen ten, fifteen thousand, dollars even $20,000 uh, installment loans, and although the cost is usually lower than that of a payday loan, they still can be very, very expensive, um, much more expensive than other costs of borrowing. Um, and just in terms of who uses payday loans, you know, it's the vast majority of Canadians luckily don't need to resort to payday loans, but there's up to 2% of Canadians uh, in recent surveys that said they're habitual payday loan borrowers. Um, and what's interesting is how this changes amongst vulnerable groups. So for low-income households, it's doubled its 4% incidence. For Indigenous peoples, it's doubled again to 8% incidence. Uh, And for single parents, 8% of single parents have used payday loans in the past year, according to a recent survey. So it can be people really at the edges of our financial system who really have a tough time accessing financing anywhere else who who are being hit with the highest cost financing, unfortunately. And that's the cycle that you're talking about. You owe money, you can't get out of it, you've got to borrow more more money to pay, and and on and on and on and on it goes. That's exactly right. So, look, can we talk about some of the charges? Like, do you actually know what what these companies are charging these days? And and, and then talk about why this type of borrowing uh, has such a high cost. Yes, indeed. And I'm really happy to give some concrete numbers because I think the way that payday loans are often marketed, it's not that clear that the interest rate is so high. So, you know, first off, you need to understand even accessing the money you've borrowed can sometimes have additional costs. So some payday lenders might ask you to take your loan via a prepaid card and they charge you extra cost to activate and use the card. So setting that aside, because I think it's just quite distasteful, but I'm sure there's some objective of saying, well, this is easy access, but I don't just give the cash is my opinion. But putting that that aside, let's talk about the borrowing cost. So each province and territory has some different rules and restrictions. But in BC, the maximum fee for borrowing a two-week $100 loan is $15. Okay, so it doesn't sound like a lot. And that's what you see advertised all the time is a loan is $100, uh, sorry, $15 on $100. Okay, sounds high, but... Uh, if you think the maximum legal interest rate in Canada is 60%, so in the criminal code of Canada, there can be no interest rate charged higher than 60%. A credit card is usually in the range of, you know, 12, maybe to 19 to 29%, somewhere in that range. If you actually do the math on a two-week payday loan, that's $15 on 100, that's 400% interest. So six times higher, six and a half times higher than the maximum allowed by law is what you're actually paying on a small 
payday loan. And maybe $15 doesn't sound so bad, but if you actually look through an example, and this is provided by the government of BC, they're actively trying to encourage people to look at all of their options before they borrow from a payday lender. If you borrow $300 with a payday loan, within 14 days, you're paying back $345. And as we calculated, you know, that's about 391% interest, so quite high. Um, if you actually used a line of credit, and let's say the line of credit had a $5 admin fee and a 7% rate, instead of $345, you're at $305, so about one-ninth the interest charge. Uh, if you used your overdraft, so sometimes people are just scared of you know approaching their bank for an overdraft or want to stay out of it all the time, it might be a $5 fee and maybe 19% interest, so you're at $307, still a whole lot less than $345 for a payday loan. And even a credit card, if you had to do this, which we definitely don't recommend, but if you had to borrow on your credit card, let's say there's a small fee of 5 bucks to access the funds and a 21% interest rate, you're still at $307. So the very expensive credit card cash advance is going to cost you about 7 bucks. The payday loan is still going to cost you $45. So it's so significant, so much more expensive than other sources of financing. It's easy to see how that can be a cycle that you're paying back the second loan and then you're left short because you paid all this high interest. So you need another loan and then you pay that back and you need a further loan. So again, the cycle of payday loans is something I see just about every day. And it's just the whole idea of just don't start with one because it's very difficult to just end with one. And I totally understand what you're saying when you, when you, when you give the other examples in terms of a line of credit or overdraft protection. The average person just doesn't even think about those things because it's a bank oriented thing. I would, I would think that's why I, I wouldn't think of that. I think, oh, well, the guy's on the corner. He, there's his store or he sent me an email or whatever. That's got to be easier than having to go to a bank and ask that question. Well, and that's what the, the niche is, the, the value to the payday lender industry is this is providing access to credit to those who might be underbanked, so to speak, or don't have a great relationship with their bank, or maybe don't even have a, a bank account in some cases. Um, so, you know, a payday lender is going to give you access to funds, but it's at such a significant cost that we really encourage people to explore every other alternative first. Um, you know, even if your payday loan is because you're going to be late for your rent, it might be worth talking to your landlord. And, you know, if you do it in the right, respectful way and have a good plan that you could execute on, you might have saved yourself all of that hassle and just you know pay the rent a little bit late that month uh, you do need to understand that you have rights when you take out a payday loan so if you've just signed one recently and are concerned about it you've got two full business days where you can cancel the loan and not pay any penalties um, and you always have the right to repay the loan early without paying any additional penalties so those are a couple of your outs there uh, but a lot of people again they're, they're just trapped in that cycle of the high cost I want to mention, too, uh, if you're in this situation and you want to take some action, go see somebody from Sands & Associates. Go see Blair, uh, and they have offices all over the province. Uh, 1-800-661-3030 is the website, or is the phone number, and the website address is sands-trustee.com. And just get some good, free information on steps to take, and maybe they can give you a hand with this. So beyond the expense of basic costs, there are some areas uh, of caution that you think it's really important for people to know about when it comes to this time, this kind of borrowing, Blair. 
Yeah, a couple of things to highlight right off the top is be very careful with online payday lenders. So a lot of them aren't licensed. Uh, they will not follow provincial rules or may not um, in your jurisdiction. So the things we talked about, the two-day right to cancel and pay things off early, if you're borrowing from an online lender, that could be tough to get them held accountable to D.C. law. And if they're located outside of Canada, it can be just impossible to have anything you know judicially set in Canada that's going to be binding on them. So just be very careful if it's an online lender. Um, also be careful that sometimes what you think you're doing online, applying for a loan, uh, you're actually just giving your money to what's called a lead generation website. So you put in all your information, what you're looking for, uh, and then they're not going to actually give you the loan, but they're going to sell your information to a bunch of other providers who then might start following up with you with unsolicited offers, calls, maybe even harassment, uh, where you end up with not the best deal, but just the one that, you know, kind of screamed the loudest in your in your ear uh, and made you just want, you want them to go away. Uh, you need to be careful, too, about upfront fees. So it's illegal for a company to request that you pay an upfront fee to obtain your loan. Um, so the Financial Consumer Agency of Canada, um, they actually said this on, on their website, and I quote it, uh, is don't fall for promises that you'll get a loan regardless of your credit problems. If you have poor credit or haven't established good credit history yet, it's unlikely that anyone will lend you money without charging large fees. So the whole idea of it seems too good to be true, you know, great loans, low rates, no credit, doesn't, doesn't matter. Uh, generally, it is too good to be true, uh, and you'll be cautious about that. And, you know, finally, you can always check with Consumer Protection BC to verify if a payday lender actually holds a license in the province. So if you do end up needing to take this step to take a payday loan, at least make sure they're licensed so that you do have some recourse through Consumer Protection BC. We've just got about a minute left, Blair, and I know this is a large question for a short amount of time, but what are some of the other real warning signs that might signal it's time for somebody to get some good advice and to get out of this cycle? I mean, is it even possible? It feels pretty dire. No, it's absolutely possible to get out of this cycle. I think, you know, a big warning sign, if you're habitually using payday loans, that's probably the number one warning sign. It means if something is not going according to plan, if you're always paying, you know, close to this 400% interest rate on some funds, uh, you should sit down with a professional to figure out, well, what's the root cause of this? Is it because all of your other debts are so high, you're not left with enough money to get yourself by, and you have to resort to payday loans to, to fill the gap? Um, you know, that's a big warning sign, just even having a single payday loan, let alone three, four, five or more. If you're carrying multiple, you definitely should be phoning us up, have a chat, and we'll, we'll try to get, get it to a point where you don't need to use payday loans. But the biggest warning signs that we see just in general is if you're stuck in a cycle of just making minimum payments on your debts. So you've got some debts, they don't seem to go down each, each month, but you make all your money to minimum payments and you can't do any more than that. That's when you need some advice from a licensed insolvency trustee to stop that cycle, to freeze the interest, to get you out of debt, and you can get back in control of your life. I'll give you the website one more time, sands-trustee.com, or give them a call, 1-800-661-3030. Set up that first consultation. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates, helping you get out of debt. So we're going to talk about the personal, the real personal do's and don'ts for dealing with debt. Um, and dealing with debt, it's a tough one, working to pay off debt or struggling to get a handle on mounting debt problems can feel very overwhelming. 
isolating, just crummy on all fronts. Uh, so the cool thing about Blair is he's going to focus exclusively on debt help services. That's sort of describing how Sands and Associates operates. And you're going to share some personal do's and don'ts to help people stay on track as you kind of navigate the challenges with debt you may be facing. And I love this segment, Blair, because it's not about the, the what you call, and, and these terms are good too, the on-paper stuff, but it's the off-paper support uh, that comes into play when you and your team at SANS sit down and start to work with people who are seeking some help with their debts. Mm-hmm. Exactly, Elaine. That's the approach we're, we're proud to take because, you know, it's not the case you come in for a consultation and you know, we're going through a form, we're ticking off boxes, okay, give me this number, that number, so on and so forth. The way we start our consultation is typically very open-ended. We really want to hear the story. We under, understand the person, the circumstances, what have they been going through, what's led up to this point, uh, you know, what are their objectives for moving forward. Uh, you know, if we don't know that for sure right up front, you know, how can we provide the best possible situation, the best possible solution? And what I often find, too, is people don't expect, um, you know, to find a personal interest, a personal level of compassion when they're coming to confess about their money problems, because a lot of the time, any discussions they've had have been just so terrible. It's either a collection agent that's, you know, coming through the phone, threatening to take everything but their firstborn, or maybe it's a family member that says, oh, wow, how'd you get yourself in so bad? You made so many mistakes, and, you know, they just end up feeling more judged. So we're proud to be able to offer a very safe space where, you know, I can't say that we've heard everyone's story before. We haven't, but we can definitely, you know, see a lot of parallels, a lot of situations in our experience in the past that allows us to give people hope um, that the path that they're on is actually going to be a good one. And, you know, tomorrow they're debt-free. Uh, it's going to be a whole lot better than yesterday when they had no idea what they were going to do. So and one of the, you know, oh, yeah, sorry, I was just going to say, one of the things that I know that you guys rely on at SANS is this BC Consumer Debt Study, where you've talked to mm-hmm. so many people, and they've given you so much good information uh, that you can then share with folks when they're coming in your door. Yeah, it's the largest single piece of research focused only on people in BC who file bankruptcies or proposals, and we do it every year. We're coming into our eighth year coming up here in 2021, um, and it helps us understand exactly, you know, what situation and what's, what's life like for people when they come to us, and, you know, what causes people to reach out for help, and what it generally is, overwhelming stress the number one sign that led people to realize their debts were becoming a problem. And when we go a little bit deeper, it's such significant proportions of people who are just having a very difficult time. Three and four respondents said debt stress caused anxiety or depression. Uh, More than 70% felt helpless or hopeless. Uh, Over a third said they started to alienate themselves from friends and family. Sometimes there's even substance abuse that can be triggered by this. And what's completely sobering for us and letting us know exactly how important what we do is, uh, as much as one in six people that have responded to our survey and you know decided to be very very honest and straightforward with us have said they contemplated suicide as a solution to their financial problems so it's completely all-encompassing and sometimes people really feel the world closing in with their debts and it doesn't have to feel that way yeah that isolation really plays a role in this kind of uh this kind of anxiety and and fear about it so blair on that note can you take us through a couple of the do's and don'ts to help mm-hmm. folks Sure. First one is do be honest with yourself. 
So really ask yourself, are you feeling confident or are you feeling concerned about your debts and your overall finances? Are you spending a lot of time thinking about your debts? Is it taking up a lot of your mental capacity? Um, you know, quite often, if you think you have a debt problem, you really do. So if you're just feeling uncertain about things, it's time to reach out, at least have a conversation. Very few people to reach out to us or say, there's nothing we can do for you and, you know, you, you have wasted your time. No, you're going to get something out of the conversation, at least something that's going to put you on a good path to either help yourself or somebody else. But if you're feeling the anxiety, it's time to reach out for help. And again, that shame comes up to play for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a don't. It's don't get trapped by self-blame or feeling bad about them, about yourself. A lot of people blame themselves. They feel deeply ashamed. You know, we know generally people are very honest. We want to honor our obligations. And sometimes things completely out of your control have put you in a situation that you're just not able to do so. You know, sometimes life has other plans, so to speak. And it's how you react to those other plans can really determine what your future looks like. I just want to point out, too, that if you already know or feel that you've got uh, to take some action on your debt situation, I'm just going to throw in the phone number quickly, 1-800-661-3030. And that's for Sands and Associates to help you get started. So what are the other don'ts you want to make sure that folks pay attention to? Yeah, a big don't, and this is good for life, but don't assume, you know, don't make Mm -hmm. assumptions about your debt solutions, because a lot of people, they think they know something, they think maybe a well-meaning friend, even a financial planner or advisor might have told them something. I've heard everything from you can't get forgiveness for CRA debt, to bankruptcy is only possible if you're in default, Um, you know, you've got to pay this person back no matter what, you can't go bankrupt on this versus that. So a lot of folks, they really think there's no options for them because they've just assumed away um, a solution that is actually out there, but they don't investigate it enough. So definitely don't make assumptions. Make sure you get the facts. It must be challenging for folks to really take stock of their situation. It's a really good thing, but I bet it's challenging. Well, it's, it's a really important thing to do, but it can be very difficult. And sometimes the longer you let things go, the more intimidating it can be. So, um, you know, when we have people coming into our office. They had stacks of mail sometimes, you know, a year worth of statements. And as that stack just got higher and higher, their anxiety level got higher and higher. And I could just see as we're tearing through the envelopes together, okay, now we've got it out in the open. Now we can deal with it. But, you know, if you're just burying your head in the sand, you know, it feels good in the short term, but eventually you just know you're not dealing with the problem. So you've really got, as we say, to take stock, even just on a sheet of paper, writing down, here's who I think I owe, here's how much, here's what I'm able to pay. You know, bringing that to our first consultation will give us just about what we need to figure out what you can do. And often so so it happens for folks that they're in such a vulnerable, anxious state, uh, they don't often know who exactly to turn to. And I just want to really let's talk about why it's so important to see a licensed insolvency trustee when you're in this uh, state of mind. Yeah, you've got to understand that only a licensed insolvency trustee has the tools, the expertise, um, you know, the know-how to get you to debt-free. So if you start to Google about, you know, debt advisors, debt consultants, debt help, you'll find there's 150 different people that might claim to do what a licensed insolvency trustee can do, but only an LIT can actually implement either a personal bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. And what really gets me sometimes is that some advisors will charge people, sometimes it's three, four, even $5,000, to eventually send them to a licensed insolvency trustee where they could have came there right from the start, had a consultation, worked out their own plan. And then sometimes the advisors that send on to a licensed insolvency trustee, they'll say, well, you still need me along the way. I'm going to give you coaching. I'll help you rebuild your credit. And the person ends up paying this advisor for months or years into the future. Um, So definitely, again, do all your investigations, understand who's out there, but be guided by the idea that only Industry Canada has licensed insolvency trustees to administer bankruptcies and proposals. It costs nothing to meet with us. So be very, very careful if you're meeting with somebody who's not an LIT. 
Okay. And in the last minute or two that we've got, can you share some do's and don'ts that folks should just sort of keep in mind as they work through their plan to pay off debt in that research mode? Well, I think one good one is to take a break from using credit if you can. So sometimes, you know, one of the best things to do is just, you know, whether you put the cards in the freezer, put them on ice or whatever, and especially if you're doing a consumer proposal or a personal bankruptcy, you're going to have to live without credit at least for a period of time. So it's worthwhile to even just take a month off from credit, just say, I'm just going to roll with cash this this month, I'm going to pay checks or whatever, and just see, are you actually able to meet all of your obligations? Does your budget work? In some cases, the budget is actually broken, and it's not the fact that credit's getting out of hand, it's the fact that every month there's $500 more expenses than there is income, and credit's been able to mask that because the balances just keep growing. So definitely take a break from credit for even a short term to really look at your budget in detail. And what about those financial liter- liter- literacy skills that you have talked about before? And that's so important, Elaine. You know, people feel so much more in control when they know the rules of the game. They know exactly what can and should happen. Um, And if you do a a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal, a key component of that is two financial counseling sessions where we talk to you about rebuilding your credit, trying to avoid a similar situation in the future. So there's so many great resources that are out there. The Financial Consumer Agency of Canada has great online resources as well. So definitely worth checking into to see how much you can learn. And this, of course, folks, is all about giving you some good information so you can move forward with your life without debt, if that's something that's hanging over you. Sands & Associates' qualified team of caring experts are available to sit down with you and talk this through. You can book your free non-judgmental debt consolidation uh, consultation rather session to get started, 1-800-661-3030, toll-free, or visit sands-trustee.com. This segment is all about wage and bank account garnishments, which I think is a really good idea for a segment because, man, that would be unbelievably scary uh, just dealing with that threat of a garnishment by a creditor. Be super stressful for folks. And they do have rights, like the person, the victim in this case, does have rights. Uh, But boy, oh boy, you know, you, you have to you have to figure out or find out what those are. Yeah, that, that's exactly right, Elaine. This is oftentimes one of the most challenging situations people face, um, and it means that things have gone very bad with their creditors if suddenly there's a garnishment in place. And what we talk to when we, when we say garnishment, it's sometimes called you know, a garnishee or a wage assignment or an attachment. Uh, what it is, it's the ability for a creditor to collect a debt from you by seizing part of your income. So what it means in practice is that you were getting your paycheck, you know, just regular along, things were going fine. Suddenly a creditor gets a garnishee against you, and quite often the province of BC, that's 30% of your take-home pay before you receive it. It's taken off the top and given to the creditor who has the garnishee against you. Um, so that can just be incredibly debilitating. Most people are really having a tough time making ends meet on 100% of their income. So to suddenly have to work with $0.70 from their salary uh, can be very difficult. And it often sends people running through our doors because a trustee is one of the only people that can stop it dead in its tracks. I bet it does. I can't, I can't imagine going through that. Um, so how does a creditor start this kind of collection action? Well, there's a bunch of things that, that have to be done. And what's 
important for people to know, too, is that let's say 10,000 people owe money and are a little bit delinquent. All 10,000 are going to be threatened with a garnishment, um, but it's a very small subset, probably in the low single digits, you know, maybe it's four or five of those thousand who are actually going to get preceded with a wage garnishment. So just because you've been threatened with one doesn't mean it's going to happen tomorrow or the next day. It might happen. You might be one of those unlucky few, but it is something that's threatened very often, um, but it's, it's not always followed through on. Um, so what a garnishment happens is that the creditor, or how a garnishment happens, is that the creditor needs to apply to court to start a wage garnishment, and that takes time, and it generally doesn't happen overnight. So even if they're threatening your next paycheck, we're going to take some share of it. If you know there's been no court action taken against you, you haven't been served with documents, nothing like that, you know that's a bit of an empty threat. So before a creditor can actually garnish your wages, they need to get actually two court orders. So the first is a judgment against you um, called a payment order, which confirms that you owe the creditor the debt. So, you know, if you owed a credit card company a debt and they've tried forever to collect from you and you haven't paid them, they can go to court and the court would give them a judgment against you is what that's called. Um, and they would win because it's a valid debt and you're not disputing it. Once they have, have this judgment against you, um, they can then seek what's called a garnishing order, which would require the third party who owes you money, which is often your employer, to make payments to the creditor and not to you. Now, any creditor that's doing this, they actually have to re repeat that step for every pay period. So each time they're doing this, they are incurring some costs. Um, so you know, it doesn't always get get stuck on there, but sometimes creditors can be quite efficient. Um, they'll just be a machine, and every pay period they'll be back in court and getting the garnishee to, to basically be, be re reinstated each time. Um, so it's really important that you don't stop opening your mail. You might miss some of these legal notices. You might miss a service of documents if you don't open all the things you're supposed to. So just make sure that you're aware of what's going on. If there's been a judgment, uh, a payment hearing, or then a garnishing order, you, you definitely want to know about that. Um, if you haven't opened your mail and you just get surprised, what you're, go what you're going to find is your employer's payroll department is going to receive the garnishing order from the creditor, and they're legally bound to abide by that order. So if they decide, well, you know, we really like you, Joe, and we don't want to give any of your wages to the creditors, what it means is that employer is now personally liable for making that remittance back to the industry back to the creditor who has the garnishee. So it's not something they can be wishy and washy about. Unfortunately, that garnishee has to be respected. Okay. Now, is this the same process for all creditors who are wanting their money? Not all. So all except for government. So any typical consumer debt that's not a government debt, they do have to go to court. They have to get the payment hearing and the garnishing order. But if it's a government debt, they can skip court altogether, uh, which is, talk about a shock. So again, you definitely open your mail, but sometimes you might not even have a whole lot of, of advance notice of the government deciding that they're going to garnish she. They can just send a note directly to your employer. Uh, if you're self-employed, they can also send a notice directly to your clients, and they can. that's what's called the requirement to pay, and the requirement is for them to pay the government, not you, uh, meaning that your clients might have to give 100% of the amount that they owe you if you're self-employed, have done a bunch of work and are expecting a big check, CRA can intercept that up to 100% of the funds uh, with very little notice to you. Uh, they can also put a hold or a freeze or even a seizure on your bank account with little notice. So when we say garnishment, quite often it's CRA and there's not that much advance notice, but anybody that's not CRA does have to go through that multi-step court process. Okay. And do I know that they're undertaking this process right away? 
Well, it depends. So usually this is not the first thing that they're going to try, especially with okay. CRA. They're going to try to be reasonable. They're going to let you know what's happening. Uh, but you might not have a whole lot of advance notice uh, that you're going to be garnished because sometimes they want to make sure, especially if there's a bunch of money in a bank account, that you don't just go and move that bank account elsewhere or take the money out and hold it in cash. So sure. sometimes you'll have an idea it's coming, but it can hit you without much warning at times. Okay. I just want to direct folks, if you're wanting to take some action or need more information than what we're giving you at this moment, check out their website, Sands & Associates website. It's really good. It's filled with great questions and answers, lots of good information at sands-trustee.com. Or if you're in this situation already and you want to take action and uh, get that appointment with somebody from Sands & Associates and see if you can figure this out, 1-800-661-3030. How much of a person's income is a creditor allowed to take? Yeah, usually in the province of BC, it's 30% of your net. So after those deductions are, are taken for CPP, EI, income tax, and things like that, um, 30% of what would be paid to you is what typically a creditor would be able to seize. Um, but there are some exceptions to this. So Canada Revenue Agency can go above 30%. It's just a provincial limit, not a federal limit. Uh, and Family Maintenance Enforcement, they can go above 30% as well for unpaid alimony or child support. Um, as I mentioned, CRA could take up to 100% of amounts owing if you're self-employed and a client is about to pay you. That could be seized up to 100%. Uh, but there's some income that's very difficult to seize, and this just makes sense. You know, things like CPP or OAS or guaranteed income supplement or employment insurance or social assistance. Typically, this is just allowing people to, to meet their very basic minimum living expenses each month. And quite often, you won't see a garnishment. No court would grant you a garnishment other than perhaps CRA or FMEP, but typically um, they're going to be you know, reasonable and understanding about that. So if you've just got social assistance or just those other forms of income that I mentioned, they're typically less likely to be garnished, especially by a creditor, but even by CRA, they're less likely to be seized. Okay. And then what kind of options do I have to deal with this? Well, you can definitely try to apply to court to have the garnishing order set aside. So you can try to prove to the court that this garnishment is causing you significant financial hardship or it's not required to ensure payment of the debt. You're going to pay these guys. They don't need the garnishment to, to make sure of that. Or you can ask them to increase the percentage of your income that's not subject to a garnishment. So uh, by default, 70% of your income isn't, suffer isn't subject to a garnishment. You can say, well, court, I think it should be 90% of my income, and that would reduce the amount that, that's being taken. Most people don't pursue that remedy. They get you know, quite scared of making court applications or don't know what to do. So quite often, they just allow the garnishment to continue um, or quite often, and I hope people know this is an option, they reach out to a licensed insolvency trustee. And the reason why creditors often threaten a garnishment but don't pursue it is because any money they've spent to get a garnishment in place or anything like that, it stops dead in its tracks as soon as a licensed insolvency trustee is appointed. So either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal would stop a garnishment, give the person their income back, and they're generally in a much better position once they've got that protection. Got it. I can't stress enough what good sense it makes to to give somebody at Sands and Associates, a licensed insolvency trustee, a call just to say, look, at this is my situation. What can I do? What can I do today? Because often it's like this is starting tomorrow or it's been going on for a week already and I am in a serious situation. So sands-trustee.com is the website. Give them a call 1-800-661-3030. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. 
The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.